0: Today's scripture is from the New Testament, the book of John, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that though believing, you may have life in his name this is the word of god for the people of god God. thank you penny i have something i want to show you this morning here it is it's a bible no great shock right because look at the scripture i mean the sermon series title bible 101 not a surprise I'd have a Bible in my hands for that. This this is one of several billion Bibles that have ever been sold. It's the Revised Standard Version, which is one of like 2,500 translations that have ever been published. It's in English. So that's one of the 483 languages that the complete Bible has been translated to. You know, the Bible, it's the best-selling book of all time, by far, so pretty ordinary thing to have here in my hands, but this this is not an ordinary book, at least not to me. This is the Bible that was given to me by the people of College Hill United Methodist Church on August the 26th, 1984. I turned eight years old the day before. This was given to me. I started third grade the day after. This was given to me. It's an important moment, that moment that the people of College Hill in Wichita, Kansas gave me this Bible. They were saying, hey, this is an important book, and it's our book, and and now, Amy, now it's your book, too. It's not like the book was brand new to me on that day. Of course, the people of College Hill, my own parents, they had been telling me the stories in this book for eight years already. They had read to me stories and taught me songs about the people in this book. They had given me pictures to to color and and games to play and even costumes to wear, all about the people in this book. I already knew a lot about the Bible by the time August 26, 1984 rolled around. But when they read my name and they handed me this book in front of the whole congregation, along with Ben and Danielle and Tiffany... And all the other about to be third graders, they, they were saying, we don't just want you to know this book, Amy, we want you to read it. We want you to read this book. And we expect that the reading of it will shape your life. We want the reading of it to shape your life. Now, they didn't get that idea all by themselves. They took that idea from the pages of the book. Actually, we can find such motivation in the end of the Gospel of John, this passage that Penny just read for us. It says, These things are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in His name. I don't think there's a better explanation in the Bible for what the Bible is than that one sentence. The writer, he meant it about his particular story of Jesus, of course, but I think we can expand it to include all of Scripture. Why do we have the Bible? To help us know who God is. That's the most fundamental thing. The Bible tells us who God is, but it's not just to inform us, it's so that we can have life in his name. Scripture wants us to know who God is so that we know God so that we develop and grow our relationship with God, and that's a relationship that changes our lives. It's a relationship that brings us joy and peace. It brings us comfort and inspiration. It convicts us. It guides our decisions. The Bible brings us a life that is saved and transformed. That's the point. So I wonder, is the Bible currently doing that for you? is it bringing you a life that's saved and transformed and if not what would you name as the obstacles that are in the way really i want you to think about this just think about it for a minute what are the obstacles that you're experiencing to reading using and knowing and loving the bible what's in the way Whatever it is that you're naming in your head right now, I can promise you, you're not alone in thinking that thing. As obvious as the Bible seems when we're sitting here in church, it's a complicated book. It can be a hard book. It takes an investment of time and energy to learn it and to know it and to understand it, to let it be something that shapes our lives. But I'm convinced, even in this age of Google and Wikipedia, where we can get all the information that we would ever want in just a matter of seconds. Even in this age of social media, where we have more content poured into our heads and then right on out of our heads than ever before, even now, the Bible has the power to change and shape our lives unlike anything else. And I hope that for the next four weeks, as we look together at the basics of the scripture, that you will be convinced to up your relationship with the Bible so that it can do its good and its holy work in you. One thing that I think we need to admit right up front is that as United Methodists, we are not, generally speaking, the best at knowing the scripture and using the scripture. Now, of course, we don't use it as the sole sole source of authority for our Christian faith. It's our primary source. Of course, it's our primary source. It's our bedrock, but unlike the Lutherans or maybe the Reformed churches that would say, solo scriptura, scripture alone. We don't say that. We use scripture in conjunction with tradition and reason and experience, and that's how we construct our faith. Maybe, though, that's part of why we're kind of bad sometimes at knowing the Bible. I see this a lot when it comes to funeral planning, One question that I uh, always ask families as we're planning a funeral service, I say, are there any scriptures that you want to make sure that we use? Is there something that was important to the deceased, some verse that meant a lot to them? And more often than not, families have no idea what to tell me. They don't know if their loved one had a favorite scripture passage. They don't have a Bible at home that's full of underlines and marked pages and notes in the margin. They don't use the scripture in their conversations, even their most important conversations with one, so so they don't know what to tell me, which, you know, that's okay at funeral planning time. I'm happy to choose scriptures that are appropriate to the person. There's always plenty to choose from, but but it reveals to me something about where our heads are regarding the Bible. In my last appointment, my last church, I often would stop in at a Sunday school class that was full of 30 and 40-year-olds, And they were a lot of fun. I really liked hanging out with them. And almost every time I would go to that class, I would end up telling them stories from the Bible. It would just happen. Someone would ask a question or their lesson would would mention some small verse. And these guys were great at asking questions. And so I would end up sharing with them a bunch of context or telling them the backstory of some character or explaining to them what else Jesus had done that was like this one moment or whatever. And I would just do it off the cuff, just relying on my seminary training and my years of preaching, but more often than not, it seemed like to them new information. Like they just, they did not have a larger narrative of the Bible in their heads. And these were really smart people, professional people, but they, they had just not spent enough time reading the book to know the connections that it has inside of itself or, or know its larger pro- plot. One time, when I must have been in a particularly entertaining mood, they told me that my summaries of the Bible were like an episode of Comedy Central's show, Drunk History, which I took as a compliment at the time, but now I'm not so sure. (laughs) Anyway, these were people who had come to adulthood after the disciple Bible study phase had mostly ended in Methodist circles. And I know that many of you took disciple Bible study. You had a season of disciple Bible study here at St. Paul's, and I'm so glad for that. And if you ever took any of those courses, you know that it teaches you the Bible in a very in-depth way. And it it was such a gift to the church, spearheaded by Bishop Dick Wilkie and his wife, Julia it helped a whole lot of United Methodist people relate to the Bible in a way they never had before. But the truth is, the Disciple Bible Study movement has basically fizzled out, and we're back now to a place where United Methodists are not that great at knowing the scriptures. Now what do we do about that? Well, you can guess. I'm gonna have some suggestions over the course of this series. And there's, of course, way, way too much to say about the Bible in just four sh- short sermons, but I do want to spend a little time over the next weeks to teach a little bit about the Bible. Of course, I always try to teach from the Bible at the basis of all my sermons, our hope, are the Bible. But over the next few weeks, I'm also going to talk about the Bible, and we're going to look at some of those obstacles, maybe some of the ones that were in your head, the things that keep us from using Scripture regularly in our lives. Today, what I want to do is just take a minute to talk about where the Bible came from, how it got to be this thing that the people of College Hill United Methodist Church could give me as a whole book in 1984. The first thing I want to say is really obvious, and that is that someone wrote it. That's how we got it. Someone wrote it. Or or rather, a whole bunch of someone's wrote it. People, I mean, people wrote it. It didn't just come down for us from out of the sky. The Bible that we have has 66 different books in it. That's the Bible we use. The Catholics and Orthodox Christians, they have a few more books that they call the Apocrypha, but our Bible has 66 different books in it, but it has more than 66 different authors. But all those authors, I believe, had the same aim, and that's the aim that the writer of the Gospel of John shared, that the book would reveal to us who God is and that it would change our lives as a result of that revelation. So people wrote it down. They wrote it down on parchment, and God inspired them as they wrote it, and then it was put together in a book, and in 1455, the Gutenberg started printing it on their printing press, and here we are today, right? No problem. Well, not quite that simple. On the matter of how God inspired the writers, we're going to delve into that in another week. What does it mean to call the book the Word of God? But today I wanna talk just for a second more practically than theologically. How did we actually get the book? Well, Bible, that's a word derived from the city name, the ancient city name, Byblos, which is the city that exported parchment. (laughs) And we have some very old parchment that contains the text of the Bible. But I hate to tell you, we don't have the oldest parts. We don't have any of the original writings of the Bible. We don't we don't have them and when i say we i mean the church or any synagogue or any museum or any biblical scholar anywhere in the world these things just they don't exist anymore we don't have that scroll that john wrote on or the parchment that paul used let alone the scroll that isaiah wrote on or the parchment that the psalms were first written on we don't have any of the original manuscripts for any book in the Old or new testament no original documents at all all we have are copies and really, what we have are copies of copies of copies of the originals. In fact, the oldest manuscript we have of any New Testament writing, forget the Old Testament. the oldest uh, manuscript we have of any New Testament writing is a tiny fragment of parchment. It's just a few words from the Gospel of john it's called p fifty two I have about a picture of it. This is the front and the back. It's like a postcard from a museum where you can go see it. This is the front and the back, so it's just that big. It's called P52, and through carbon dating or however they figure these things out, it's thought to be from the first half of the second century, so like the year 130 AD, which is really old. This was discovered in 1939, actually. 130 AD is really old, but it's also like 100 years after Jesus died. So this is the oldest thing we have and that's all we have of it. The oldest complete manuscript we have, well, it's a lot younger than this fragment. So what we have in our Bibles are translations of copies of copies of copies of copies, and those copies were made by professional scribes, people who did this for a living, but guess what? They were human, and that means they were not perfect, and we know this Because among the oldest copies we have of all the biblical books, the copies do not completely agree with one another. They're not identical. So reading along in one, a word or a phrase might be missing. A longer sentence might exist. You can imagine someone copying and they fall asleep for a moment and they pick back up and they they skip a line or they skip a word. It happens. So translators and printers of the Bible, they have to decide which of those copies is most accurate. Which is most true to the intent of the original author? And if you read the notes, especially in a study Bible, you'll see places where there's clarification or explanation about decisions that the translators made. So if you're reading along in the Bible and ever get confused about like who's speaking or the characters or the plot line seems a little sideways, it's you probably run into one of these textual issues where they had to make some choices. Okay, does that destroy the meaning of the text? No, it doesn't. God continues to speak to us through the pages, even though the process to get the text to us was messy. And to me, honestly, that's one of the miracles of the book. One more thing that I want you to know today, and that is that there was a selection process to get the Bible that we have today. You know, the writings, they weren't all composed in one sitting by one person. It took like a thousand years probably for them to be written down. And they were written in a variety of places, and a variety of purposes. Let's just think again about the New Testament. Probably the oldest book in the New Testament is, a, is a, one of the uh, letters of Paul, but we'll say maybe the Gospel of Mark was written in the year 70, which is probably after all the disciples had died. But by the year maybe 100 or 150, the Gospels that we know, they were all circulating around these churches, okay, along with some of Paul's letters. And what happened was they had these parchments, and they copied them, and they sent them out to other churches, and then when they gathered for worship, just like we do, they would read parts of those letters or the gospel to one another. They didn't consider them the Bible at that point, right? They thought the Bible was the Old Testament, just like Jesus called the Bible the Old Testament. Over the decades, though, through the gospels, the writings of Paul, as more and more churches began to use them, more and more people found inspiration and solid teaching in them, so that by the year like 400, we start to see bishops and other authorities print lists of which letters and books should be read in church and which should not. Okay, and as those lists kind of get codified, codified, that's where we get the New Testament from those lists. They came to be the Bible because the overwhelming majority of Christians were using them in worship. And in case we think that that was obvious, it wasn't <laughs> about about which books should be in and which books should be out. It took time to figure that out. It's 70 years ago or so, there were a set of ancient scrolls that were found in Egypt around the same time as the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they really helped biblical scholars with some of these questions about textual accuracy. But one of the discoveries they made in the set of scrolls, along with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there was another gospel, a fifth gospel, called the Gospel of Thomas. Maybe some of you have heard of this. Here's a passage from the Gospel of Thomas. It says, And he said, The human one is like a wise fisherman who casts his net into the sea and drew it up from the sea full of little fish. Among them was the wise fisherman discovered a very large fish. He threw all of the little fish back into the sea and easily chose the large fish. Any with two good ears had better listen. Does that sound like Jesus of the Bible? I mean, it kind of does. Except that in the second and third centuries, Christians decided the Gospel of Thomas, if you read the whole thing, was not a reliable source for teachings about Jesus. So they stopped using it in churches, they stopped reading it, it didn't make it into our Bible and it was forgotten about until this discovery 70 years ago. So it was not this big formal process somehow that resulted in the canon of scripture. Like Mark saying, now I am writing something for the Bible (laughs) and then it gets put in by vote or something. Does that make it any less powerful as the Word of God? I don't think that it does. In fact, I think it's the opposite. It it is even more powerful as the Word of God because over and over again, it proved powerful in the lives of Christians. As they met and they worshiped Jesus, as they tried to live their lives in accordance with Jesus' teachings, these are the writings and the letters that proved most helpful to them, most instructive, most alive with the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, we're still sorting in some way today. Some parts of the book we cherish a lot more than others. Some parts we find a lot more helpful than others. But holding the whole thing together, as passed down to us from our ancestors in faith, wrestling with the whole thing, I think it keeps our faith full and alive and growing. All right, so that's just a moment of explanation about why sometimes the Bible can seem a little weird to us. Sometimes the manuscript evidence is bad and translators don't know 100% what a word in Hebrew actually meant. Sometimes two passages were written by people who were really far apart in time and space and there's tension in the way they understood God. But none of it keeps it from being that thing that the writer of the Gospel of John said he wanted it to be. A book that testifies to us about the love of God. A book that helps us believe in God. A book that brings us life. All right, my challenge to you for this week. Can you guess what it is? Read the Bible. (laughs) All right. All right. What I suggest is that together this week we read the Gospel of John. We've got seven days to do it. It's 21 chapters. That's three chapters a day if my math is right. I think you can do it. You can do it. And it'll bless you. It's going to bless me to read the Gospel of John all the way through in this short amount of time. Read the Gospel of John together. Let's do that. And ask ourselves, what is it I'm noticing about Jesus in this story? What might Jesus trying to be, try to be telling me right now? I think that we will find in the pages of Scripture words of life for us. Beautiful words, wonderful words. Thanks be to God for the gift of the Scriptures. Amen.